Well, I hope you've had a good afternoon. Hope you got a chance to get outside a little bit and enjoy some of the nice weather. It's uh, certainly as nice an uh, afternoon as we've had in a while. I wouldn't say it's uh, enough to get us started on spring fever yet, but it's enough to make you talking about it anyway. Yeah, we need some snow. I, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, it'll feel like winter once you've had some snow for sure. Well, I hope you have had a good day and a good week and a good start to the month of February. We're continuing in our study on uh, some survey of church history items and Christian denominations. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Congregationalist. And, uh, and you'll say, well, that's, that's not a group I've heard of before. Well, the time we finish, you will have heard of them. But we've got to start there. And the Adventist. And uh, we'll do that group second. And you have heard of that bunch, probably. And uh, we'll talk about some of the complications they bring to the discussion. So we've got some good topics to cover tonight. I'm thinking at this point we'll probably finish next week with our survey of denominations and then turn our attention to the Baptist, uh, which is a part of history, uh, church history that even a lot of Baptists don't know. So it'll give us an opportunity to introduce you to some, uh, some of the origins of the Baptist and the Baptist documents and some of the history of the Baptist. So that'll, I'm thinking that's, that's more than one night for sure. We'll do two, maybe three of those and, um, and bring some of that into our discussion uh, to help us appreciate the history of the Baptist. Uh, there are some, I think, some great stories, some great individuals in the history of the church for sure. And uh, they are products of their time and the circumstances that challenge them and their faith, and uh, we'll begin tonight by introducing you to another one of those, and um, I think I'll mention a little bit about his connection even as the Baptist saw him too about the same time period. Well, let's pray as we start this evening, and of course we're one group and there's many other around the church that are gathered, and uh, we want to uh, ask the Lord's blessings on all of them. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our day. Um, a wonderful day to be in your house for worship and praise and to allow your word to penetrate our thinking. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be back this evening. Pray to bless our time as we continue in this study and continue to learn more, uh, not only about the history, but the denominations and about the distinctives that we need to be aware of. I uh, pray that you'll bless all of our Bible study groups that are gathering this evening, from the children to the adults, and I pray that you'll uh, make it a profitable time. And we pray that we'll use it well, as it, we know it will pass quickly. And uh, may you be honored through all we do tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The um, Congregationalists and Adventists are two unrelated groups again. They really have no connection to each other very directly at all. Um, either in their history and in most of their doctrine, we'll find some differences there too. Uh, so it's two groups to kind of bring and uh, commit to some of our time to. The Congregationalist begins, the Congregationalist group or the Congregational Movement begins in England. And um, this is the man who is credited with being the founder of a movement called Congregationalism. As we look at it now, we say that in history, but at the time, look at the names up there at the top. English Independent Christians, the Separatists, and that's a term we're going to come, we're gonna, we've seen some and we'll see it more as we move forward, especially with the Baptist. The free church movement. Now, that's an odd term to us. We don't, we don't hear the term free church very much, uh, but there still are free churches, and the movement pretty much has existed its entirety in England and Europe. A free church is a church free of the government oversight. That's the meaning of it. Now, we're a free church. We absolutely charge you nothing to come in, but that's, the, that's a different meaning entirely, obviously. The free church movement just says this is the terminology of what it would mean to be a congregation that is separated from the church that is connected to the government, which we know all through Europe and even today, uh, Europe is dominated by churches, church, national churches that are run under the shadow of a government. And once you hear all of that and sort of appreciate some of the history of it, it really does make you appreciate what our founding fathers in our nation did um, in the uh, uh, First Amendment of the Bill of Rights by separating a church from the government, that there would be no national church in America. And um, that meant lots of important things, even for us today, and it's an environment we've grown up in. But not so for millions of Christians through the history of Europe, 
All they've known is a church that was somehow tied to the government. Even to the point that the pastors were paid by, are paid by the government. They're considered a government employee. Well, that, that just has got to impact the way you do things, for sure. So Robert Brown is a man um, recognized as the leader of the congregational movement in, as it started in England. And you can see his dates there. In the six, this would be in the 1600s, early 1600s particularly. Late 1500s, the movement starts. It sort of gets, begins to get steam by the time you turn into the 1600s. We'll see how that plays out. His followers, again, names are important, obviously, but it's a time when names are, are kind of rough. They really don't always represent. So what do you do? You just name it after the person. And we're going to see that happen again here in just a moment with the uh, Adventist. They're just called the Brownist meaning that they were willing to be a congregational church. Now, here's, here's why this is important. In, you know, go all the way back to the Church of Rome, the Church of Rome that becomes the Church of England when King Henry separates them from Rome follows the same authority structure. There's bishops, there's priests. It works its way up, right? Remember, in, the, in England, the, the head of the monarchy is the head of the church. Um, and in the Roman church, the Pope is the head of the church. When the congregational movement started, it said, we will govern ourselves as a church body. Now, this is an idea that we are very comfortable with because that's exactly how we operate as a church. We operate as an independent body of believers, a congregation that functions for the purpose of taking care of our own business, our own doctrinal business, our own budgetary business, our own hiring business, as we exercised last week through congregational vote. It's all done congregationally. So we do somewhat inherit a little bit of this, but I'll mention now, because I'll probably forget by the time we get to the Baptist in a few weeks, even the early Baptist writers were quick to say to their to their opponents are the people asking about them, well, who are you? What, what does your congregation believe? Where do you stand? Even, Bapt even the very first generation of Baptist writers in England were quick to say, we are not Brownist. Those early Baptists believed in congregational authority. But... What the Brownists held on to were most of the doctrines of the Church of England, which had been, of course, inherited from the Roman Catholics. The Baptists said, we are congregationalists in the sense of our church authority, but we are not Brownists because we don't adhere to the Church of England doctrine. So the distinction of the Baptist very quickly divided, was divided from the Brownist movement because it's about the same time period. It would be the Brownist movement in England that would ultimately become the Puritan movement of the middle 1600s. We'll talk about that in a moment. And most importantly, we know them as the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims who came over as Puritans came from a Brownist group. Now, they had traveled a bit in time because, like so many, including Baptists from England, they left England. To stay in England meant you had to be a member of the Church of England. Well, they weren't going to do that. The doctrine is corrupt. They felt like the, um, uh, the structure of authority we are not in agreement with, and so they left England. They went to Holland. And that group of separatists who went to Holland stayed there for 12 years, only to find out Holland really wasn't a place that they were comfortable either. Yes, there was religious freedom, but they were not comfortable in the culture and the environment of Holland. And so they came back to England to regroup themselves. Now, all of this comes about from the reign of Queen Elizabeth. 
she reigns from 1558 to 1603, 45 years. Stop for a moment and think about having the same national authority for 45 years. That's just beyond our comprehension, you know. We, can sometimes, we, we sometimes can't even bear four years, much, or eight years, much less 45. But of course, as monarch of England, she rules until her death. Elizabeth, remember, was part of the line of England's back-and-forth tug-of-war. Are they going to be Protestant? Are they going to be Catholic? It starts with her father, Henry VIII. He separates England, the Act of Supremacy, in 1534. England is no longer part of the Roman Church. However, it was Henry's intent that the England the Church of England, retained the doctrine of the Roman Church. They just didn't want the authority of the Pope. So he began, he at least cracked the door, so to speak, in the minds of many to say, well, maybe England will now have an opportunity to go more Protestant, which is what has happened on the continent of Europe, in Germany particularly, and of course Switzerland. When Henry dies, his nine-year-old son becomes King uh, a parent. The country, of course, is not ruled by a nine-year-old. It's ruled by a regency. And that regency was more Protestant-leaning in their thoughts. So they used Edward in his position to implement changes in the religious system of England. They're called the Edwardian uh, rules. Not from Edward, just authorized under the name of Edward. But Edward only lived six years. He dies as a teenager. So the Protestant movement that seems to have a little bit of head of steam in England, in the Church of England, now runs into a major roadblock because the next in line to be monarch of England is Mary, who is a very strong Catholic. So now the pendulum swings the other way. Mary institutes very heavy Catholic laws she pretty much strips the Church of England of all the reforms that have been put in, and it was just a tumultuous time. She is, of course, Bloody Mary, because she killed so many of the Protestants, the Protestant leaders. She, too, will only be queen for a few years. After about five or six years, she passes off the scene, dies of a tumor, and now the crown falls to the remaining child of Henry VIII, and that's Elizabeth. Elizabeth is more Protestant-leaning. And so she begins to slowly implement changes to get England back to a more Protestant stance in its church. However, she realizes she can't do it too fast because she doesn't want to deal with the Civil War. Remember, England was conscious of what's happening on the continent, and they're having all sorts of Wars and battles and all sorts of things happening over there in the latter 1500s. It gets even worse in the 1600s. But she doesn't want a civil war, a religious civil war in her hands. So she institutes what history will call the um, Elizabethan Compromise. Officially, it's known as the Act of Uniformity. Now, hear it in the name, the Act of Uniformity. We're all going to do the same thing. We're going to be a uniform country exercising our religion in a uniform church. So they pretty much are following the same template. She even introduces a new Bible. It's part of the Bible history, too. Elizabeth author authorizes a new Bible translation that will be known as the Bishop's Bible. And it replaced the Great Bible, which her father had instituted as a translation. She now comes along and institutes even a new Bible for the people to read, for the for the pastors of the churches to preach from. And the act of uniformity said, we're all going to do the same thing. That way we keep the peace. What was the act of uniformity? Basically, it said, we'll be a little bit of Protestant and a little bit of Catholic. You know, reminds me of the Osmonds, a little bit of country, a little bit of rock and roll. You remember that? Some of you here remember that. And, and she said, we're, we're just going to find a way to make this work for our own good, for our national good. Let's all rally to the nation, and we understand our differences. And if you want to be a, a little more of a Catholic, that's okay. If you want to be a little more of a Protestant, that's okay. But stay within these boundaries. 
Elizabeth had her own issues. We, we often and rightfully um, cast our, our uh, stones, so to speak, at her sister Mary for killing some 300 Protestants. Well, in her reign of 45 years, Elizabeth killed about 300 Catholics. He had them executed. But not so much because of the fact they were Catholics, but because of the fact that they were trying to lead an overthrow of her as queen. They were working, you know, underground, trying to get a movement started to overthrow the queen. Now, now that issue doesn't go away either. We're going to see as we, we're going to work our way through some of this in some other settings, and we'll see how the, the tensions between the Catholics and the Protestants in England does not go away. There were, there were, um, there were rumors of, an assass- of assassination attempts. There were rumors of Catholics being smuggled into England from Europe and other Catholic countries that were sent there as assassins. So, you know, the network was busy at work all during her, during her reign, and um, the individuals who were executed under her reign as Catholics were mainly executed because they were assumed either to be assassins or they were assumed or tried and shown to be assassins or tried and shown to be someone who was trying to subvert and overthrow her rule as queen, start an uprising or start a civil war. So it's an interesting time, but it is during Elizabeth's time that this movement called the Puritan movement really starts to take shape. And we know the Puritans a little bit. We have some imagery of them. Um, these were individuals who had strong convictions about their faith and were wanting to exercise those convictions outside of the Church of England. But remember, the law of the land was, if you're not a member of the Church of England, then you're not in support of the Queen, which makes you a potential for treason. And so it really was to take your life in your own hands, and so to speak, to, to make an, an outward expression of your discontent with the Church of England. The Puritan movement would be the driving force that took some of those separatists and sent them to Holland, where they stayed for 12 years but were discontent there. And so they come back to England, they regroup, and they rent this sort of a rickety old ship called the Mayflower. And they gather at Southampton in England um, to leave for America. Originally, they were going to leave on two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. But Speedwell was even worse shape than the Mayflower was, and it started taking on water. So two ships set sail. They got out to sea a while. They both had to turn around. The Speedwell was rendered impossible. We can't do this. We risk our own lives, the lives of our family. So they crowded everyone they could, 102, onto the uh, Mayflower and made that treacherous voyage, a historic voyage, of course, arriving in America in 1620. And while they were there on the Mayflower, they continued to express their trust in God, their dependence upon Him. They saw themselves as a reflection of Moses leaving Egypt to go to the promised land. That was the most dominant theme in their thinking. We are God's people leaving the land to go to a promised land. And that was a driving factor. That was a force that, that motivated them. They saw themselves in the center of God's will doing that. And we, we know the story of some of the pilgrims, right? A little bit of it. I would encourage you to if, you haven't, if you've never read a book on it, it's really a fascinating story to read the details. Of that 102 that arrived, that first year there, of course, uh, almost half of them died from the weather, from accidents, um, just from the uh, terrible winter that they suffered through, the lack of food, and all sorts of things. And, and we really do owe a great appreciation as a nation, historically, to this group that came and obviously started a a group as they gathered there at the Horn of Cape Cod. Uh, What we now know, of course, is Massachusetts, and began the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The, um, once here, they settled into their church routines. 
And um, one of the most interesting things I, I, I like about this image is notice the guns that are there at church with them. Um, it's, they, what did they do? They took their doctrines, they brought it to America, they established churches, they taught the doctrine of the Church of England without the authority over them of the Church of England. They were Congregationalists. We'll run our own church. We'll set up our structure. And so they began to, as the colony expanded and more came, more of those early uh, pilgrims came, they began to set up, of course, communities and, and the church and all that went with it. There's a lot of great things to admire about the Congregationalists or the Pilgrims, as you want to call them. They did not call themselves Pilgrims, by the way. That's a label of history. They would call themselves Puritans or Congregationalists. They maybe occasionally called themselves Brownists, but that was over in England. Here in America, they would be more known as Puritans or Congregationalists. But once they established their rule for communities and for church, they were very strict to those rules. They had known no toleration in England. Interesting enough, when they got to America, they showed no toleration. We'll see that in a moment. When we think about the Congregationalists, again, the Church of England doctrine, so they held on to the doctrines. They just got rid of the government involvement in the church or the government oversight of the church. Therefore, baptism to them could be infant baptism they're very comfortable with. And they didn't care what the method was, dipping, pouring, or sprinkling. So they held on to that doctrine. Calvinistic and Reformed, we won't go, we've gone down that path a little bit. We'll talk about it more in the Baptist discussions than we will now. Calvinistic and Reformed, which was the movement of Zwingli and Luther out of Europe that had found its way to England. And the way it found its way to England, by the way, was many of the theologians and the pastors of the Church of England who were Puritan under Mary left England. I mean, they, they were watching fellow pastors being arrested and executed in prison. The only safe place to do or to go was to go to Europe. So they would go to Europe. And where would you go in Europe? You would go to either Germany, where you would be un, ultimately under Lutheran teaching, or you'd go to Switzerland and you'd be under Calvin's teaching, Calvinistic teaching. So after Mary dies and they all start to come back to England, they bring all that teaching and doctrine with them. So they've held on to, to that. Again, congregational independence is their, their banner to wave. That was a, that was a change for sure uh, for England, for, for the English Christians. And again, that's not unique. Uh, many denominations will pick it up. They will affirm two ordained offices pastor and deacon, and they will affirm two ordinances in the baptism and the Lord's Supper. What's interesting about this group, though, is that they established some pretty stringent laws against dissenters. So if you, if you were a part of the community, and all of a sudden you, you just thought, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of it anymore, I don't agree with it, or I, whatever, there were some pretty hard laws against you as a dissenter within the Congregationalist Church. And they had some pretty harsh laws against other denominations. Uh, remember, this is the group that executed four Quakers. And the ones they didn't execute, they would often torture. And uh, the tortures are, as you can imagine, pretty horrendous. I mean, again, think about the mindset. You're torturing someone in the name of Christ who claims to be a Christian. I mean, you know, it's an it's a oddity of, of the time for sure. Uh, the Congregationalists, I'll tell you a story when we do the Baptists, the Congregationalists imprisoned and, and uh, beat Baptists, too. They didn't have any use for Baptists. Um, and, and some of the stories of the, of the Baptists who came to America found themselves in direct, con, direct opposition. I'll even tell you a story that, that you may have heard of about Baptists who wrote President Thomas Jefferson in 1800. And appealed to Thomas Jefferson saying, you know, in short, Mr. President, we want to exercise our faith, but the Congregationalists are making it impossible for us to do that. Aren't we a nation of religious freedom? So the Baptists in Massachusetts were complaining to the President about the Congregationalists. 
As America turned from being colonies to a nation, the late 1700s, early 1800s, the Baptists would run into other oppositions even in the state of Virginia. We'll get to those stories. Just whet your appetite with those. So the Congregationalists didn't have much to do with the dissenters within their communities or other, other Christian sects, as they were called, who would come in or denominations who would come into their communities. They would chase them out. Um, they would expel them. They might arrest them and threaten them and beat them and then say, you know, you come back one more time. Remember the rule against the Quakers? Three, three strikes and you're dead. Uh, that was the Congregationalists making that rule. So, again, it's a little bit of a hard, hard thing for us to sort of balance the two, but at least we can appreciate, you know, we like their intent to be separate and free from the Church of England. But once they got here, they, they got a little uh, power hungry in some ways. The path of Congregationalists looks like, of the Congregationalists, and this is where we'll get to a denomination you'll recognize, I think, looks like this. In the 1600s and 1700s, the New England Congregational Churches flourish because that's who's coming over from England. The people want to be separatist. And they jump right in with these communities and help build their churches, establish their laws, and build their schools. We owe much to the, to the early pilgrims and the congregationalists who came for the education system they established for their children. So 16, 1700s, it is from the congregationalists that you get Harvard University, Yale University, and some others that are part of that New England, you know, Ivy League we think about right now. So 16, 1700s, that's what's happening in New England. In the 1800s, as America begins to move west, Thomas Jefferson will sign into, no, I'm sorry, uh, right after America becomes a country, um, there will be the Northwest Ordinance, which takes in all the states west of the Ohio River, becomes part of America. And, of course, under Thomas Jefferson, it's the Louisiana Purchase that we bought, you know, about well, half of America from the French, uh, Napoleon. And so America is expanding westward through the early 1800s. And now you're starting to see independent frontier churches. Frontier is the word that you would typically see in this. They weren't an organization. They were just, you know, what would happen? A bunch of people would start a community somewhere, usually near a river, right? And one of the first things they would do was somebody start a church. They had no authority. They had no sending agency. There's just a community church. And they would do what they could to hire a pastor or select a pastor from their community. And these churches were getting to, to crop up as America is moving westward. That would exist and for 100 plus years until 1931 when there was a merger of the general that formed the General Council of Congregationalist Christian Churches. And in the 1930s, this was a move in order to strengthen um, the presence and the capacity of these churches to work together. So it's congregationalists. So this is primarily a New England movement, right? These are churches that many of them could say, hey, we've, we've been in existence 200 plus years. And now we need to associate ourselves together into an organization. So that merger happened. And that accumulated a lot of churches, obviously. Then in 1957, that group we just talked about, the GCCCC, the General Council of Congregationalist Christian Churches, they merged with a, another group called the Evangelical and Reformed Church, 1957, and this creates the United Church of Christ. That's a denomination we would recognize, and you will see those uh, in, in lots of places. And so that's the denomination today that is the, has the history that goes all the way back to the Congregationalist. The United Church of Christ is not the only Congregationalist association. There are others. Uh, the United Church of Christ is a logo on the bottom right. There's also the Conservative Congregational Christian Conference. Have you caught the trend in all these denominations? There's always a conservative wing and the liberal wing. The liberal wing is definitely the United Church of Christ. They are liberal in lots of things. And probably all things you would expect them to be liberal in. Doctrinally liberal, socially liberal politically liberal, they, they just kind of gather that. Again, northeast mindset, for some of us, that's a reference point worth talking about. There's also the National Association of Congregational Christian Churches. And there's one or two others uh, that would fit in that, but those are typically the three biggest ones that you would talk about that are all products, if they trace their history, they go back to the Congregationalist. 
There's some line of connections if you put all the dots together there. Now, historically, we think about the Congregationalist. We're thinking about the Plymouth Plantation or the uh, Plymouth Colony. Um, Reverend Jonathan Edwards might be a name you recognize if you know much of America's uh, church history. Very influential voice during America's first great awakening of the 1700s. Considered by many to be one of the greatest academic religious minds of American history. Um, he's, the, he's the congregationalist preacher, and you may have heard this sermon. It's, it's interesting to me that here we are these many years later, and we still remember one sermon he preached. Anybody know what it is? I bet you do, Brother Ray. Sinners in the hands, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that was, um, uh, that was a sermon that sort of shook the, shook the nation in that first great awakening. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Governor John Winthrop was the governor of Plymouth Plantation and certainly one of the uh, um, founding voices of America as a colony. It's from the Congregationalists that you get the Salem Witch Trials. We've heard of those, right? The Salem Witch Trials happened uh, from uh, 1692 and 93. It resulted in the imprisonment or death of 170 people convicted of being witches. Were they all witches? Go read some books. I don't have the answer. But it is an interesting story. Um, but that's, again, that grows out of the Congregationalist communities of the Northeast. Uh, again, they were known for persecuting other Christian sects, as we've mentioned. There's some interesting associations because of the presence of the Congregationalists in the Northeast and the importance of the Northeast during America's colonial and early national period. Uh, President John Adams uh, our second president, Congregationalist, his son, of course, John Quincy Adams, also Congregationalist, Calvin Coolidge, Millard Fillmore, and William Taft are just some of the ones that you, are, are the ones that you'll see in the line of presidents who will identify from a Congregationalist background. I think since then, you'd probably, all the 1900s, you might, it wouldn't surprise me if you find haven't looked lately, but it wouldn't surprise me to find a few presidents that might be United Church of Christ. So they would sort of fit in there on the footnote, but not directly. So a little bit of influence, certainly, in that, in that sense. So that's the, that's the Congregationalist. If you're going to find them today, you're going to find them as United Church of Christ. And uh, the, again, their trail of many hundreds of years here. Let's talk about the Adventist. Anything come to mind when you hear the word Adventist? Yeah, Seventh-day Adventist is typically where we hear that. Let's talk about the term Adventist before we get, because you have to take care of the Adventist part of this before you can get to the Seventh-day part of it. Because again, what we see today, what we know in our culture today or in our communities today would have been different in the 1800s where this starts. The Adventist movement begins under the notion of something called Adventism. And the root word there is advent. We, speak, we use this term occasionally, but I'll, I'll promise you it's, it's not a regular term in the Baptist vocabulary. We occasionally hear the term the first advent of Jesus. That's when he first came to earth. We celebrate Christmas, the first advent. The second advent of Jesus is his return. So you see in the definition, the doctrine that the second coming of Christ and the end of the world are near and at hand. Now, there's, there's certainly plenty of doctrine in our Baptist mindset about the return of Christ. And if you've been here gospel long, you'll hear it preached. Certainly, our pastor will preach it. You'll hear, you'll hear it preached. The coming of Christ. We hear terms like rapture, the millennial kingdom. All those things are a part of that, you know, the judgments and all those things. I mean, I'm not here to go down that trail at all. I'm just saying it is Adventism in its core form will be found in Baptist circles, as is true in many evangelical circles. Many evangelical circles have a doctrine. Now, there's differences and distinctions, and again, that's a, that's a, that's a series of lessons unto itself. But the content of Adventism became very popular in America in the 1800s. If you think about it, the church history, especially from England to America, there were lots of things churches were wrestling with and Christian communities were trying to figure out. But for the most part, the return of Christ was not one of them. 
They were trying to figure out other doctrinal issues like baptism or church authority. Or they were trying to figure out how do we structure a church and how do we make a church engage with the community and what's its relationship to the government. There's some big issues they're wrestling with, but the return of Christ was not one of them. But in the 1800s in America, that changes. And and England will, will pick up on that too. It changes in America in the 1800s. Let's remind ourselves at least of a verse because this will help, help us to see where the Adventist uh, doctrine goes. This is Matthew 24. This is Jesus speaking here. The disciples came unto him privately after he had preached on some pro- prophetic things. And they said, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Well, certainly it's a good question. It's in the scriptures. The disciples ask it. Jesus will answer it. What's his answer? You have, to get, you have to read through a bit of a passage to get to it, but by the time you get to verse 36, here's the answer. But of that day, the day in Christ's return, and the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So what's the short answer to verse 36 to the question? No one knows. Isn't it interesting how people have thought they could figure it out when Christ himself said no one knows? And implies no one can know. So what are we to do? Be ready. The coming of Christ is a biblically prophetic promise that is certainly taught in many denominations, evangelical denominations. More strongly in some than others. But in the 1800s, this topic caught fire. And American Christianity really turned a lot of attention to this concept. If you trace some of the history of, uh, of American evangelicalism in the 1800s, you will find that there were conferences that were held just on the one topic of the Lord's return in the 1800s. Well, the most famous one was, uh, is uh, uh, up in New York called the, the uh, Niagara Conference, the Niagara Bible Conference of the 1800s. And the main, they gathered every year, mainly to talk about the Lord's coming. And it was a big topic. One of the names that eventually rose through this, through this culture, of Adventist teaching was this guy named William Miller. No relation. Not that I know of anyway. He was a Baptist preacher, but he was a lay preacher. He had not been trained or in seminary or anything of formal education, but became a pretty, pretty well-respected and uh, a, a, a very popular Adventist preacher because he actually, this was his topic. He would go from place to place and preach. And so he became very much in the 1800s a leader in the Adventist movement. You can see his, his, um, his time there would be you know, early 1800s in, into the middle 1800s. He became a leader in this discussion. And he was sort of the traveling Adventist uh, preacher. And what he had done at the time was very unique. And this is one reason why it became so popular. He started with a passage in Daniel chapter 8. And we're not going to take the time to look at it and try to criticize or critique his argument. But I think you'll see quickly where it goes. He took this passage, says in, uh, from Daniel 8. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So he started putting together some ideas based on some history he had available to him. So you you put these dates together and these passages, right? That was his mindset. That was basically his his preaching. And he comes to this conclusion. Christ will return in 1843. Now, in the early 1800s, again, this was a topic on a lot of people's mind. And he had a system So what happened was he put a little, he put, gave himself a little room there. So from, from the period of 1843, from March 21st, 1843, through March 21st, 1844, that was the window in which the world will end, Christ will return, and get ready, right? What he developed from that looks like this. And I know you can't read it, and don't even try to. Just give you a headache after a while. But if you start on the left, he starts with the vision of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets. You remember that vision by chance? 
He starts there and works his way through the, through the kingdoms that are referenced there. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom follows that. Um, I'm, yeah, the Medo-Persian kingdom and then the kingdom of Greece and then the kingdom of Rome. And he does all these. He puts together some Bible verses and some historical facts and he comes to this. Here's what I to pay, pay attention to this. When the time you run that thing from the top left down the column, next column, top to bottom, and you work your way through, at the bottom you get to right there's this date, 1843. So much so that it was printed in a track like this. Evidence from Scripture and history of the second coming of Christ in the year 1843. It was a bestseller. Right up until March 22nd, 1844, the day after all this window was supposed to be the time when Christ would come, it didn't happen. Now, what do you do? His followers really did not develop, again, he's a Baptist. And so he finds himself in evangelical circles of Baptists and other denominations of like-minded evangelical perspective toward the advent of Christ. And what happens is that he develops a group of followers who believed him. And it was pretty widespread, for sure. They became known as Millerites. And this group, they weren't a denomination, but they were from the evangelical denominations that adhered to his, his time frame. And of course, when it didn't happen, right, it didn't happen. And so here we are now, you know, what, 180 years later, and it still hasn't happened. So the Adventists who were following his teaching now had to sort of reconstruct and back up. What do we do with it? Well, of course, many left the Adventist movement and just gave up on it and said, well, you know, all for, all for naught. Others, however, held on to it and thought that Miller had gotten us partway there at least, but we didn't know all of it. They tried to make him out to be, well, he had, he had a lot of things right, but, you know, he missed some things. Well, into that continuing discussion comes another figure important in the Adventist movement. This is Ellen G. White, and you can see her time frame. She is basically a generation following Miller, but she too grows up in the shadow of this Adventist teaching and she begins to take it more seriously. She starts to have visions where she says she now understands more of what Miller had tried to do. In her lifetime, she supposedly had some 2,000 visions that helped to clarify all of the stuff that Miller had pointed us to but didn't have all the details. And God had given Ellen G. White all the details through these visions. Of course, the media of the day is primarily in print, you know, no social media, TV, radio, obviously, in the 1800s. So she begins to write articles. She wrote some 5,000 articles in 40 books, many of which are still in publication today, writing about the second coming of Christ and how do we live in accordance to the second coming of Christ. And I'm, I'll show you some of the details in their beliefs here in just a second. Ellen G. White became kind of the cornerstone of everything that would be Adventist teaching, particularly the Seventh-day Adventist. William Miller kind of fades in the background. He's only a prelude to get to Ellen G. White in their mindset. And because they have such a long history in writing and publication, uh, they print several things. These are just a, a small, very small sample of the, of the kind of pamphlets you will find them producing. And that hasn't changed much. The Seventh-day Adventists, as we know them today, have really become very astute at media. They have a television network. They have a big online presence through YouTube and other things. Um, I'll show you in a moment one of their television preachers who, um, who's still very popular. 
I'm not even sure if he's still doing it or not. He's moved on in years. I, mean, I assume he's still alive, but he's uh, definitely on in years. The book that came out of this is one, some version of this or another called Seventh-day Adventists Believe. 27. These are the 27 foundational doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventists as we know them today. Some updated version of this, I did find one updated version of this, is 28 foundational doctrines. So here they are. Here, and I want to show you some of their beliefs. Typical Adventist beliefs in this book. Belief number 19 references the law that God gave to Moses. The Seventh-day Adventists believe the Ten Commandments are binding upon Christians. All ten, right? They believe the Sabbath day should be observed because it's one of the Ten Commandments. And they say Christ never did away with the worship of the Sabbath day and our assembly on the Sabbath. So why are they Seventh-day Adventists? Because they meet on the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. They believe that you have to do that. There, you hear very quickly a works-based salvation. You have to do these things. So here's a little bit, sort of a short version. Jesus Christ will return visibly to the earth after a time of trouble. We might call it tribulation. During which the Sabbath will become worldwide. That Christ will reinstitute and re re demand everyone follow the Sabbath day worship. They have a, a belief of the holistic human nature. Humans are uh, an indivisible unity of body, mind, and spirit. They do not possess an immortal soul, and death is unconscious sleep. So when you die, your body's laid in a casket, and basically you go to what's called soul sleep. You're there asleep, spiritually, awaiting the coming of Christ. Right? And so I'm going to refute all of these. I'm going to say I hope, those, I hope these things sound odd to you, because they are. They believe in conditional immortality. The wicked will not suffer eternal torment in hell, but instead will be permanently destroyed. This is called the doctrine of annihilation. They will be annihilated into nothingness. So you see very quickly how these beliefs certainly contrast what we'd say as biblical doctrines. At his ascension, Christ commanded an atoning ministry, or commenced rather an atoning ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And then in 1944, why 19, or 1844? Because again, that fits in the time frame of William Miller. So they haven't jettisoned Miller. They just said, here's what we now know that he didn't. Christ began to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary in fulfillment of the day of atonement. So evidently, Christ is still up there doing that since... 1844, and there's going to be a judgment, which began in 1844, in which the books and records are examined for all the universe to see. So Christ is evidently working his way through this list since 1844 in the process of doing that. They believe Ellen G. White, really as the prophetess, of the movement, the ministry of Ellen G. White is referred to as the spirit of prophecy because of these visions, and her writings are considered a continued and authoritative source of truth. They will only interpret the Bible through the writings of Ellen G. White. And what's interesting is you have to know the name Ellen G. White or have to know a little bit, at least a reference point for the Seventh-day Adventists to be able to recognize and see some of their publications, which they still put out. I'll show you one here in a moment. The, um, um, what I find in many books today, I mentioned White's books are still in publication, and they are sometimes sold at Christian bookstores. Because remember, Christian bookstores don't have doctrinal statements. They have profit and loss margins. So they're just trying to sell books. And I had, a, I, uh, I had a member of our church, no longer here, moved to another state many years ago. I had a member of our church approach me here in this building one day and say, oh, I found this at the Christian bookstore about the coming of Christ. I wonder if you're familiar with it. And I turned it over and it said, authored by E.G. White. And I said, well, I'm familiar with the, the author for sure. And I can tell you it's really probably not going to be worth reading. 
because it's coming from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective. Again, that Seventh-day Adventist is not on the cover. The name Ellen G. White was not on the cover. You had to look on the back and find it in the small part at the bottom. So you have to sort of be on the lookout for the name Ellen G. White because they really pro proclaim her as the, um, as the prophet with the visions who helps understand this. Seventh-day Adventists are a couple things they're known for in their lifestyle is pacifism, which we've seen in other denominations. Another thing Seventh-day Adventists are known for is a strict adherence to a dietary law. Remember, if you're going to follow the law of God, there's also those dietary laws in Leviticus. And so Seventh-day Adventists have pretty strict dietary laws. Uh, they won't drink caffeine. They certainly won't do alcohol. They won't do tobacco. They, they have a very limited you know, set of things that they will follow, that, which they think reflects the dietary laws of Leviticus. And um, so that's a little bit of their practical side of things. They, of course, a, attending church on Saturday is a part of their seventh day because they believe the Sabbath is still commanded by God to do so. That Christ never did away with it. In preaching what you hear, when I've heard Seventh-day Adventists preach, what you hear from them, the first 80% of the message you will agree with, you will amen, you will nod your head and go, that's right. It's the last 20% that they're going to pull you in and say, you know, Christ says we, we should be attending church on the Sabbath. We should be following the Ten Commandments. We should be following these dietary laws. They're going to throw all that weight on you, the things that we just talked about. Because it's, it's, it's the gospel infiltrated with works, for sure. The Seventh-day Adventists are, a, are, a, are still a head-scratcher, to use a technical term, to many in the evangelical churches. We're not sure really what to do with them. They will preach a gospel by grace, but it's almost like, well, you get the grace to accept Christ through faith, but the rest is up to you. That's the way I've always interpreted them. They'll preach a gospel of Christ as Lord and Savior who died on the cross for our sins. But once you receive him, now you've got to do your part. And that just always is counter gospel, obviously, right? Now, the Seventh-day Adventist, in that spirit of prophecy and the idea of pacifism, have again been some influential names. Uh, I don't take the time to go through all of them, but I, I thought one I wanted to mention to you, because I, I bet some of you maybe have seen this media um, movie, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, the story there of Desmond Doss and how he saved 75 men at Okinawa during World War II without carrying a rifle or shooting a rifle, obviously. Interesting story, but if you, if you catch the early part of that story, even in this biography of him, it will talk about the Seventh-day influence that was upon his life and the family he grew up in. There's some other Seventh-day Adventists that you'd find in American history um, that uh, might be influential or at least names we'd recognize. But generally speaking, the Adventists still sort of on the fringe of evangelicalism. I find it most interesting if you pick up a book on the cults, you will invariably find a chapter on the Seventh-day Adventists. They just have, have sort of proven themselves over and over again to be more cultish than they have denominational. I include them here only because I want you to not be confused. The Seventh-day Adventists have some very wacky doctrines, and I use wacky as a technical term, I know, but they have some doctrines that are way off base for what the Bible teaches, certainly different from what we would teach. You know, again, like so many, so many denominations, there are some, I'm sure, fine people that are part of those churches, but they're doctrinally going to be just all mixed up and lots of things. And they just, uh, you know, they, they depend on Ellen G. White um, much more so than they do Scripture. The Adventists that we know today are the Seventh-day Adventists, most commonly for sure. The Adventist Christian Church is known today, formed in 1860. The Seventh-day Adventists even before that. And so you can see the influence of the 1800s there upon them. And then there's the Reformed, again, you know, these, all these little groups that sort of subset under Seventh-day Adventists. 
you might be surprised to know that there are Seventh-day Baptists. Uh, you you kind of have to look. I know you what? You kind of have to look and know where to look for them. But uh, more north of us, for sure, in the Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia regions, I think is probably where you're going to be your best target. But there are some Seventh-day Baptists uh, who, again, if you go back and trace their history in the 1800s, took on this Adventist movement and became convinced of the same type of doctrines the Seventh-day Adventists have taken on. So um, it's a group that still is influencing lots of folks, no doubt about it. This is uh, the one of their publications, Signs of the Time, and uh, they will gladly give you a copy, leave you a copy. You'll see them out at restaurants occasionally, maybe. One of the, without a doubt in our generation, the, uh, the voice that's been most popular is this guy, Doug Batchelor, who um, you'll still occasionally see him on TV. He used, to be a very, he used to have a weekly show, and maybe still does, or maybe somebody else, same weekly show, just somebody else speaks it now called Amazing Facts. Now, again, you can listen to Doug Batchelor preach, and the first 80% of it, you'd probably go, I agree with you. It sounds very evangelical. But he's always going to lead you down that same conclusion. You know, the Sabbath day, the dietary laws, all these things you have to do to maintain your salvation, as it were. I found it interesting, too, that even on one of the Christian networks, one of the satellite broad band Christian networks that they are showing a Seventh-day Adventist program. I don't know that because I, because I have watched the program, but there was just enough of it that tweaked my attention that I went and looked it up, and it's produced by the Seventh-day Adventists, but it's being shown on one of the mainstream Christian satellites and networks. So again, this is a group that sort of found their way into much of evangelical discussions, no doubt about it. So the Adventist movement, it's a, it's a bit of a quandary, for sure. It's a, you know, good and the bad, no doubt about it. But uh, it's not a group I would certainly want to lock arms with or encourage anyone else to do so because they've certainly blended in a work salvation along with the preaching of the gospel. And that uh, just isn't biblical. So uh, it's a group to keep up with. Well, next week, as I said, I think next week will be our last Sunday. We'll look at other denominations. And so we'll pick two next week that might pique your interest, I hope. The holiness and Pentecostal movements. And, uh, you know, somewhere in there you sort of keep the, well, we'll talk about the difference between the, where do you put the word charismatic in that? And how does it fit? So we'll look at that and some of the influence that's gone with those. And some of their history, which again primarily grows out of the 1800s, early 1900s, um, as we know them today. So uh, that'll be next week, Lord willing. We'll look to finish that up. Um, or that, that part of our study up before we turn our attention to the history of the Baptists. I wanted to update you just quickly on Jed and Amy Appel. Uh, I was emailing with Jed this week and, and got a new family picture, uh, which I just enjoyed looking at and uh, excited to, uh, to see them. And as every family does, our kids are growing up fast, all nine of them. And um, I don't know, it looks to me like they're just ready to play Red Rover. Um, but uh, what a great picture. I, I greatly value them. No, that's, that's all they have. Nine's a, no, yeah. Uh, you know, they put the old TV show, Eight's Enough to Shame, uh, so they got nine. So, uh, but a, a great family, and, and Jed was, again, very kind in his email. He said, uh, it's good to hear from you as always. Uh, we covet and appreciate your prayers and support. The spiritual battle is very real here. It seems so much stronger on this side of the island. Uh, when I visited with Jed and Amy, um, they were in a place where the, where the gospel had made good inroads into many places. But he has transitioned and now finds himself what he says. He says, I think Satan does not want to let go of the grip of the fear that he has with the people here. And he talks about this recent preaching and, and how, how much opposition he's faced. So we do well to support them for sure, but we also want to pray for them, and we'll do that as we close. Um, so that's our plan. I want to mention very quickly in closing, uh, because I was emailed also this week by one of our uh, our missionary, some of you have met even recently, he's been here at our church, and that's David Parsons. Uh, David tonight, right now, is in, is in the process of a meeting they were, churches were doing over his ministry in Winston-Salem. He says it's a ministry, and, I, and, and David's great with words. He said this is a, an outreach to the fatherless and to the faithless. 
And he said, I appreciate your church praying that when we give the invitation, there'll be many to respond. It was going to be a dinner. It was going to be a gospel presentation into the communities there of Winston-Salem. So I told him we'd certainly pray for that. So that's going on right now, and I want to pray for them as we close. And uh, we'll do that and uh, dismiss you and trust you, trust you have a great week. And uh, we look forward to a great week ahead. Be back Wednesday night. We have communion. And uh, we'll look forward to um, uh, celebrating that together. Father, thank you for our day. Thank you for the opportunity to hear such um, important reminders from Jed and Amy, also from David. I pray right now you'll bless that event. And Holy Spirit, um, I pray that you will move in the hearts of young men there that they're reaching out to to help turn their lives toward Christ. I pray that there'll be a great response. And I pray that you'll bless Dave and those who are partnering with him and locking arms with him to take the gospel into uh, dark and difficult places in the community there. I pray that you'll bless Jed and his ministry, give him strength. Uh, the opposition there is indeed real, and, and uh, it's, it's a spiritual battle. And I pray, Lord, for your power and strength upon him. Bless his family, give them health and strength. And uh, I pray that you will be honored uh, through their ministry. Thank you for the opportunity we have to support them. I pray that you'll bless other needs of our church. We continue to pray for Kara um, and the baby and, and haven't heard anything, but I pray that you'll, you'll continue to work through that, that we can hear a good delivery and health for everyone in the process of the days ahead. And we pray for our church as we go into a new week and ask that you'll bless our ministries, our outreach, and uh, bless us as individuals as we go to share and show the gospel with those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Have a great evening.